back to The Content Lab, the only digital marketing podcast for content managers, content creators, and marketers who want to learn how the content sausage really gets made. Uh, I am your co-host, Liz Murphy, Director of Web and Interactive Content here at Impact, and I am joined by my forever sidekick, John Becker, although I guess you could be my suit sidekick. I don't know. That's a portmanteau I'm not ready for. Anyway, hi, John. Hi, Liz. How are you this week? I'm doing great. It's beautiful outside. It's a lovely time of year. Everything's great. Oh, it's rainy and gray here. Although, to be perfectly frank, that's one of my uh, favorite types of weather. (laughs) Cold, rainy, gray, and miserable. Give it to me. Stay inside. Watch a movie. Yes. Uh, Or in my case, I know that the fate of the Washington Nationals will have already been decided by the time this airs, I think. Uh, but, uh, I'm not going to stay inside and watch a movie tonight as we record. This is the first game of the world series. So let's just assume that they've won the world series when this airs. So congratulations. God, I hope so. (laughs) Otherwise this is, this is like, like most of my tweets will not age well, but I I'm very nervous. (laughs) Washington has not been in the world series since we were the Washington senators in 1933. And we lost that to the New York Giants. And all of the commentary right now is, you know, Houston Astros this, and oh my gosh, Houston, Houston, Houston. And um, with all due respect to my friend across the aisle, Impact VP of Services, Bray Rangel, who is a Houston uh, resident, no, I'm going for the underdog. Go Nationals. Anyway. That's why they play the games. Yeah. We're not here to talk about my oddly specific sports leanings, are we though? We are not. Ah. We are here to actually put you on the hot seat today as we alternate our seats from week to week. I like it. So today I am going to ask you and pick your brain about how to run a content brainstorm. So if you're like Impact, you ask a lot of people on your team to produce content for your website. And sometimes uh, that's a really seamless process of people sharing their expertise. And sometimes that needs a little bit more massaging to uh, plan out, to schedule, and to start with just a brainstorm. What are the articles that need to get written? Who's going to write them? When should they get written? Etc. So I have actually seen you, Liz, in action, leading a content brainstorm with uh, grace and poise, um, and I want you to share your skills and tricks and insights with everyone listening. Oh my gosh. I think that's the first time I've ever been called graceful without a hint of irony as I spend more time falling as I do standing or sitting in a stable centralized position. So I want to thank you. It took me into my mid thirties to get to this point, And I just want to thank all the little people out there that I tripped over to get to this point. And my casting agent. You know. I hope they're listening. <laughs> but so no, first oh. off, to begin with, if you're approaching this, uh, obviously there are multiple situations in which you might lead a brainstorm. So how, are, how would you organize them? What are the different types of content brainstorms? So there are actually two rights and a wrong way. And I'm going to start with the wrong way. Um, 
where some of you might have heard at the start of this episode, we're going to talk about how to run a content brainstorm, talking with other teams, things like that. And if that sounded like a foreign concept to you, meaning you were like me maybe five or six years ago, sitting by myself or with a group of well-meaning marketers, but not the people who are on the front lines of your organization, like sales, subject matter experts, the doers of the work. Um, that is the wrong way to do a content brainstorm. Um, in fact, that is only the right thing to do if you want to create a bunch of content pieces, where you're, whether you're talking about blog articles, premium content, podcast episodes, infographics, what have you, that marketing likes and sales finds to be fluffy. So that's the first time of content brainstorm, which unfortunately happens a lot. Um, what I like to akin that type of brainstorm to is one of my favorite jokes, which if you're a subscriber of the latest, which is our email newsletter, you've heard this before. So I apologize, but not really. Uh, what, is a what is a camel? It is a horse designed by a committee, which is what happens when a group of marketers brainstorm content topics by themselves without talking to anybody. That's number one. Now, the other two are good types of content brainstorms. Now, at Impact, we, we adhere to and also teach our clients the principles of they ask you answer. And at a very high level, they ask you answer is essentially a business philosophy that is centered around an obsession with answering the question, what is my buyer thinking? And we found through data over the past however many number of years that there tend to be five topics that your buyers, no matter what industry you're in, tend to ask questions about. They're asking about cost and pricing. They're asking about problems and challenges. They're asking about comparisons. For example, HubSpot versus Salesforce. They're looking for reviews and they're looking for best of lists, whether you're talking about best of best vendors in a particular area, best in class examples, et cetera, and so on. So there is a standard type of brainstorm that we suggest people start with as they are really looking to ramp up a content strategy that is really focused around those five core revenue generating topics. We do that um, in an inbound culture workshop setting, uh, but there are also ways for people to facilitate that workshop for themselves. I'll make sure we include some links in the show notes in that. But essentially it starts in a couple of ways. Um, you create a little grid with five different columns, you know, pricing cost, problems, et cetera, and so on. And you get with your front facing teams, your salespeople, your subject matter experts, and all of those other doers, movers, and shakers that are actually interfacing with your potential buyers and then your in-house clients and ask, what are the questions people are asking that fall under each of these categories? And that's fairly simple and straightforward. Another simple way to do this, if you don't have the ability to bring everybody together, is to fire up your great internet email machine, send out an email with a simple deadline and a simple set of instructions on, hey, these are the five topics. What questions are you getting? That's another great way to simplify and that content brainstorm process, although I recommend doing it in person. So that's one type. So when you do lead that and you put those five headings on the board or, or somewhere in front of everybody, what's next? Do you have people sort of think individually or, you know, partner up or, or um, you know, come up with a sort of how do you go from those topics to actual actionable um, 
you know, titles or, or subjects that are specific enough that they can be expanded into a piece of content. Well, I think that's going to depend on a couple of factors. You know, if you have a very small team, and you're going to see that in in smaller businesses, you know, your sales team, your doers, your movers, your shakers, your subject matter experts, that may end up being a total of four or five people. So breaking them up individually into groups doesn't make sense. Now, if you have a more dimensional organization with a robust sales team and a larger set of subject matter experts, you might actually want to break this up and make it into a group activity. Now, what I would recommend, however, and we're going to get into this, I know, probably a little bit later in the conversation. If you take that approach where you say, hey, this is what we're working on today and I want to mix things up. You know, I want to have a sales rep, a subject matter expert, and a doer and whoever, and like have a more diversified cross-section of like little tiny groups and have them work together and then present at the end. Um, you want to give them some instructions, some best practices, because often how they articulate those topics is not necessarily in line with how people are searching for those topics. What do you mean? So for example, um, recently it, an app impact, one thing that's really neat is we've created this culture where people not, don't just wait until brainstorms to have ideas. They'll come to us with pitches. We encourage it every month. And we got this great pitch. Um, I want to say about a week ago from someone on our content consulting team. And they said, you know, Hey, I really want to do a big five topic around what is the difference between hiring a consultant for HubSpot implementation or content marketing creation and content strategy and a trainer. And that at the end of the day is not really a question that someone would really have. Meaning that's a very insular impact focused, let's focus on our needs. We're trying to tell you which one of these services you need from our perspective. Because when she went on to describe the pitch in further detail, she was discussing things like we want to explain, you know, what we do at Impact, why it works for us, you know, what they need to know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas instead, with a little bit of calibration, um, I said, you know, hey, let's think about it from an educational perspective. The person who is going online trying to figure things out probably has no idea or care in the world about, you know, the inner mechanics of our organization and what our priorities are and what we bring to the table. So instead of making this an impact focused article, what if we turned it around and made it marketing consulting versus marketing training? What's the difference in which is right for you? Now there we could add in some color that is contextual and thus not a thinly veiled kind of snake oil salesman type of thing where we're just talking about ourselves and we're empowering someone to make a decision on their own, whether or not they go with us or somebody else. And we're being more educational at a higher holistic level. So that's what I mean by that. Sometimes they're just so used to speaking about it in a, in an, in an organizationally focused way, or sometimes in a sales revenue focused way that you have to remind them, okay, what are the words? Like when somebody goes to the doctor, and they say, oh, my ankle's broken. They don't actually know that. What they know is my ankle hurts. And the doctor will eventually tell them, you know, your ankle is broken. You need a cast, things like that. So you really want to get into that language of, okay, what are they saying? My ankle hurts. It's swollen. What are the symptoms and how do they articulate them? Okay. So that's how you would approach a brainstorming session around the big five, bringing in the forward pace, uh, the outward facing people of your organization. What's the other kind of brainstorm? 
So the other kind of brainstorm is something that you may or may not encounter, but I have yet to encounter in my content management career, an organization where this doesn't happen to some degree. So I'm going to use impact as an example to, to define what I'm talking about. So at impact, we are a digital sales and marketing company. So we spend a lot of our time eating up all the oxygen, talking about topics that have to do with content marketing, HubSpot, marketing automation, building a content strategy, the stuff we talk about on this podcast, the stuff we talk about on the Hubcast, all of those things that are a little bit more accessible, meaning I may not be a HubSpot rockstar ninja the way Karina Duffy is, but I know enough to be dangerous enough to have more ideas about what we should be talking about there. But then under the same roof, we also have website developers and designers. And when I talk to Tim Osterheimer, who's one of our senior front-end developers, he might as well be speaking Greek. He is, what he does is so specialized, so foreign, and so entrenched in who he is as a person, and so highly specialized, it is very hard for me to even begin to think about what those topics should be. I also don't generally know from a career path perspective or from a what are the big conversations we should be having perspective? Like I, I have no sense of bearing on that. And the same thing with graphic design. I know that you shouldn't put red text on a blue background, but that's pretty much as far as my graphic design knowledge goes. <laughs> and like, that's where it ends. So this type of subject, this type of content brainstorm really comes down to, okay, so you've been talking about the big five, right? But now you're kind of adding some dimensions, some flavor, some color to your content strategy. And you're also empowering your niche subject matter experts to really start talking about the things that matter because you don't know what you don't know. So this kind of content brainstorm is where I essentially put on my little helmet and my carabiners and my ropes and I go spelunking into niche category caves and try to come out with some great ideas. And it can be a bit of a challenge. Well, that's what I was gonna ask you because sometimes you come out from your cave with baskets of gold and everything is easy and you end up with a beautiful list and a publishing calendar that is full through the end of the year. I would imagine sometimes it isn't quite that easy. So how do you, what challenges do you encounter and how do you kind of overcome them to have the most productive meetings possible? Well, knock on wood, I think this desk is actually, yes, it is wood. So knock on wood, I have come out of every one of these content brainstorms with a really good batch of, of uh, topics for, in our case, again, graphic designers, web designers, and developers. But you're right, there are a lot of challenges because um, I'm basically coming in there as, you know, Liz, the marketer who knows nothing about anything that they're doing. and there's a language barrier. There's an absolute language barrier. And depending on how bought in people are to this process, they may not necessarily feel like they're part of it. They may not feel like they're in the loop or in the know. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about leadership and sales buy-in, and that's absolutely true. But subject matter expert buy-in can also be very tricky because subject matter experts, are their goals are client satisfaction, their goals are a project gets done on time, 
a lot of times they are tied to revenue, but at a very high level and at that 80,000 foot level, especially if, you, especially if you're talking about leaders, but often they're focused on the tasks. They care about that stuff. They don't care about revenue. So marketing to them, depending on who they are, can sometimes feel like a distraction. Or alternatively, they may get it, but they may feel like, well, how do I even begin to tell you what are the things that I want to write about? Or more often than not, we don't know what we're supposed to be writing about because we feel like your audience as sales and marketing is different from our audience as the doers and the subject matter experts. So there are a lot of different challenges tied up in, the, in that. And then one of the other challenges that ironically, even though it is something you see across the board, sales, leadership, what have you, it tends to manifest itself more in the niche subject matter expert category. And that's people who are like, I don't want to be engaged in this. Like they, they just don't want to do it. They view it as outside of their skills that are what they're supposed to be doing. And that is a challenge unto itself to engage those people in the process and bridge that language barrier. But that seems like sort of a, I want to try to dichotomize that because that seems like there are two challenges there. One is people who feel like it is not in their skill set, and one who feel like it, uh, one set who feels like it is not their responsibility. Mm -hmm. And those feel like different challenges as a facilitator to overcome. So if I could, could I split those? Like, how do you make someone comfortable with brainstorming and writing and, and producing, which might feel outside of their skill set? So the interesting thing is that even though you dichotomize it, I tend to try to solve them simultaneously with how I table set each of these conversations. So mm -hmm. unlike the more traditional, they ask you answer, big five, let's all kumbaya together around a circle of sales, marketing, and leadership glory. These I tend to drive more as conversations where most of it actually is geared around just a few simple questions. Because whether you're talking about the person who doesn't think they're equipped to have these conversations and create this kind of content, or the people who are not necessarily bought in on the process, there is one thing that they both share in common. And that is generally they are exceptionally passionate about what they do and they are very proud of the work they do. So typically I start these conversations with two questions. One is a great calibration, which is I have everybody go around and say, what is the goal for you to get out of this content brainstorm? Like in your definition, what makes it a success? Even the people who are not engaged in the process will at least have some sort of conversation point here about how, well, I, I want to know what our team needs to be writing about. I know we need to be creating content, but like, I want to know what those topics are that are actually going to bring value. So even if they're not rah-rah cheerleader about it, I get them thinking in a goal-oriented mindset. And after that, I open it up in a completely, well, open-ended way for lack of a better term to be redundant. And I say, okay, what gets you excited? What are the things that excite you to talk about? And if I still notice that, that, that one group of people who are not really engaged in the process, um, I'll usually then start throwing in questions like, okay, what do you think people get wrong about what you do? What are the most common assumptions that your clients are making that you're just like, you beautiful, intellectual, divine little seahorse, you are so wrong on so many levels about this one thing? Because if you can't get them to agree and be affirmative, 
you can at least get them to say like, oh my God, this is giving me a voice. Let me tell you all of my petty grievances that have been piling up because here's the thing. I'm not calling anybody out when I say that because my list of grievances, petty, minute, baby about what I do and what people get wrong about it is expansive. Everybody has it, no matter how positive you are. And I've seen you do this and I've seen you do this beautifully. That goes back to the grace that I described before where you've been nimble and pivoted between, um, you know, a number of people around the table who might be on any end of that. So if we no longer dichotomize it and consider it a spectrum on any end of that spectrum. And uh, I think you've, I've seen you show and give credence to each answer, even if the answer might be like, well, I don't really see, um, I don't have anything to share or, uh, you know, I've seen you kind of massage those answers out of people and the conversation that results from that is fruitful. Even if there are people who might seem hesitant at first or disengaged at first or shy at first or anything else. Um, and that's what I've been so impressed with. And that's what I think the expertise that you bring to this, that, that allows all of those voices to be heard and to feel validated, but, that the ultimate yield of the meeting is, is a list and, and is a, is a strategy. And that's mm -hmm. kind of, you know, the point of a brainstorm. So could you yeah. go into some other like sort of tips and tricks for how you make these happen and how you make them happen? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the number one things I would tell anybody who's doing any type of facilitation, whether it's a content brainstorm or something else, you've got to get comfortable with silence very quickly. So there is this natural thing that we all do as human beings who want to be loved and liked and embraced by everyone in this universe is that when we throw out a question and people aren't immediately falling over themselves to answer it, we have a tendency to start equivocating on the question, to start leading people to answers and to just word vomit. And there are two things that happen there. Number one, silence forces people to start participating. And if you demonstrate a lack of fear, because guess what? These people sense fear. They will sense fear and they will latch onto it and then they will not participate. If you just sit there like with a face of a very friendly, like I'm waiting, then it, people will participate. So connected to that, you know, the, the value of silence is, is, you know, my natural curiosity is if you are planning these, how big of a time slot do you want to book out so that you know you have, you know, enough that you might go through some of these kind of winding paths to get where you want to go. That silence doesn't feel like, okay, we have to end the, you know, the meeting is, is about to end. So we need to get some answers. Yeah. I mean, silence is a tricky thing. You really kind of have to, it, it, like if you're paying attention and really engrossed in the conversation, you'll know when it's, there's a difference between asking a question and caving and starting to like run your mouth because you're just feeling insecure about silence. But then you also have to listen and be very aware of how good of a question asker you are. Because sometimes people will not respond because the question you gave them was actually three questions or worse, a word salad paragraph that is really one question. So you have to really nail those down. So for example, I tend to, before every content brainstorm, I will write down the four or five key questions I'm going to ask. And I will be very laser focused on what that text is like. There will be follow-ups. There will be other things where I'm probing and prying and quite frankly, picking on people. 
Um, but you have to learn to listen to that silence and be very aware of whether or not you are setting people up to be successful and actually answer the question. Um, often, however, you will be able to, with practice, um, not ask a question, be met with silence and then realize it's time to move on. Usually the rule of thumb I use is that if you're managing a content brainstorm for every single question, I try to organically every, get everybody to have at least one answer. Once that happens, unless it starts getting super productive or we're just like on a roll, then I move on. Hmm. So is, can you extend from that and tell me how you know that the meeting has ended and how you know that the meeting has been successful? So I generally scope out the questions for a content brainstorm around, you know, what's your goal? You know, what are you looking to get out of this? What do you like talking about? What do you not like talking about? What do people get wrong about what you do? What's the thing you're always correcting? Once I run through those questions, we've usually pretty much hit that cycle. You're going to have to feel it out, but really you're going to, if you do planning in advance, again, it takes me five to 10 minutes to do this. It's, you should not be the one doing most of the topping, talking in a content brainstorm. You should essentially have a very loose framework that governs the beginning, middle, and the end of the conversation. So once you get through those and you've got a nice healthy list and you should be taking notes the entire time and also encouraging people like, this is great guys. We have so much here, yada, yada. You know, you want to make sure that you, you just wrap that up. So you should, you shouldn't have to feel your way blindly through a call <laughs> that should be solved by the time limitation and whether or not you've gotten through your questions. So as you are, progressing through the meeting. If you feel that the focus is wavering or you're going off on a tangent, how do you as facilitator handle that? So a couple of ways. Um, in some cases, things are going off on a tangent because you're going to have people who are naturally participatory and people who like to be wallflowers. And typically your conversation will start veering off in directions that you don't want it to go in if you just have the same people talking. So one of my tips for avoiding that, and also it's just general best practice, is actually implement a system where yes, people are volunteering and openly answering your questions, but don't be afraid to say things like, I will pick on you, I will pick on people. Or say, hi, John, I'm picking on you. You're going to go first. So if you feel like you're starting to lose control of the conversation, when you move on to the next question, or if somebody who is consuming a lot of oxygen, let's just put it that way, you can then turn to somebody who hasn't been speaking and they're like, you know, hey, Terry, I, I, do you agree or disagree? So you manage the conversation, and usually you're going to do that by picking people out in advance or pivoting the conversation away from the conversation hogs. Those oxygen consumers, God bless them, so many ideas, never stop speaking. Um, the other thing I will say too, and this is one of my, one of, I would say my final tip for today, is that this is a very tricky line for people to walk who are in my position, whether you're a digital marketer who's being asked to run this brainstorm, a content manager who is known best for being under headphones and being a red pen armed monster. Um, you need to make sure that you don't spend a lot of time correcting people in a way that puts them down. So one of my favorite tricks that I like to do whenever I have to do those course corrections that I mentioned earlier, where it's like, so that's a sales topic um, and not anything we would 
ever publish ever like on our website is I try to do something that you and I talked about before, but it can't be a lie. And in fact, it usually never is. I consider every idea I get to be valid. It's just a matter of positioning. So if somebody says to me something that is very niche, I'm trying to think of a good design one, like, you know, something like, I remember Jesse Lee Nichols, who, who is our design supervisor, was talking once about how she gets really frustrated that people think she's just a button clicker rather than a visual problem solver as a web designer and a graphic designer. And I said, you know, it's a really, I really love that topic because it really makes me think differently about what your role and what you do. But let's take that back a second. What is it that we're actually talking about? Because I want you to talk about that, but let, let's figure out a different way to come at it. So you want to make sure you're always validating people's opinions, that you're explaining the why behind you want to re, why you want to reposition it. Because whenever you have something that's like Dennis Miller's, I don't want to go off on a rant here, but like you're just not, like you can do that like minimally, minimally. But, it, and it does work in certain fringe cases. But what we ended up landing on was why you need to know what problem you're solving for every design project you have. And so what we ended up doing was putting it in the context of what the audience values. And often that's all that needs to happen. It's not that their idea is wrong and you never want to make people feel that way. So every time somebody gives an idea, an affirmation better be coming out of your mouth. Oh my gosh, I love that. That reminds me of something else. Oh my gosh, do you think this also would be a great related topic too? Because sometimes you can get two or three for the price of one idea. And like really just be energetic. Even the most disconnected people, you control the energy in a conversation. And almost all of these I have done in a remote capacity. So being remote and on a Zoom call is not an excuse. And we've able to come away with really great content um, brainstorm results as a, as a result of that. But you have to like, silence is good when you're keying up questions and trying to get answers. But when you get into those riff moments, you better be the driver. Like, oh my gosh, this is great. I love this. You know, we are, we are cooking with a thing that catches on fire, you know, like things like that. Like just have fun with them and make it an enjoyable experience and value their opinions because you should and you should show that. me and my mouth and my ideas and my glorious inspirations that I'm delivering to everybody daily. I want to hear from you, John, because today you are taking over the learning corner. And I believe you were talking to us about quoting best practices, right? Absolutely. So this is something that I see in a lot of the writing that I come across. And it's just a couple sort of tips and tricks to keep in mind as we are writing. Um, so first off, I want you to remember back in high school or college when your teachers would always ask you to do footnotes or to do parenthetical citations or that sort of thing. So if you're quoting something and then at the end there's a footnote or a something in parentheses. Um, and they asked you to do that because it's following certain publication guidelines. But I believe that in good writing, 
those sorts of um, documentation are, are actually redundant. So if you're writing well, we should be clarifying where something is coming from seamlessly in what, we're, uh, in what we produce and what we share. So using something like a signal phrase, as, as simple as, you know, according to the press release or as reported in X, immediately puts your reader at ease because they can go into whatever you're quoting knowing the source so they kind of self-evaluate as they go into it. And if you put that at the end, it, it just sort of makes them, you know, if you get to the end of something and realize that it came from, you know, a tweet or it came from the New York Times, like you're going to read it a little bit differently. So make sure that, uh, that your readers know that beforehand and frame whatever you're quoting with your own language so that you are contextualizing it in a way that makes sense to your content. Second. Um, digitally, we're so often linking to, um, you know, to sources, which is great and it's, um, it's very useful, it's very user-friendly. But again, I think if, if we're writing well, those links should only be for the curious. So if it's some sort of like fact or, or um, study or something, you could link to it so that the person could look it up and verify what you've taken from it. But I think the best writing, the links, your reader will see the links just as like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I wonder what else I could learn from that source. And we'll, we'll um, click on it. You shouldn't make your reader click on links in order to understand what you're writing. That's, uh, again, the reader wants to feel like they're in good hands with you as their guide through whatever you're talking about. So make sure that those links are only for, you know, tangents that they might want to go on. Um, they shouldn't need to go there to understand you. Uh, that's, I love that you brought up quoting this week and, and especially the tips that you brought up because I think sometimes what people forget is that you don't want to make your people think, your audience think rather, not just with your website design, but also with, hmm, are they really just throwing out numbers or do these facts and figures, like are they really coming from somewhere? And one of the quickest ways to avoid anybody ever pausing mentally, either consciously or subconsciously, like, wait a minute, is to add that attribution at the beginning. And also I loved your point about putting that stuff in your own words, especially when you're quoting, this may be a little bit more true in our industry or technical fields. A lot of those research reports are very dense. And one of the best services you can provide to your audience is demystifying or declunkifying what can sometimes be very complex jargon-filled statements where it's like, no, all, all we're saying is that 25% more people like this than that. Like, that's really it. Didn't require a paragraph, but this is what it means. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, you know, I think readers want to trust you and, and they trust that your expertise and your paraphrasal and your summary is accurate and not misleading, et cetera. And you do that by both the quality of your work and by the way you present whatever information you're citing. So yeah. the only other thing that I was going to add also is that when we quote, we often want to use ellipses, the, the, you know, the dot, dot, dot. Um, I would encourage you to try to avoid that as if you can to close quotes and open quotes. And also I would say there's really no need to ever put an ellipsis at the beginning or the end of a quote. I know sometimes there might be some arguments about that, but to me, the act of quoting inherently suggests that you have taken that content from somewhere else 
and that it was in a different context. So we know that something came before it and something came after it. That's what quotation marks mean. You might use an ellipsis in the middle of something if you, you know, need to cut out something for clarity. Um, but for the most part, I would discourage you from using them and especially from the beginning and the end of a quotation. Absolutely. And to tack on to that a little bit, when you use the dot, dot, dot in the middle, unlike where you do a trailing ellipsis at the end or the beginning, those dot, dot, dots to denote that you've removed a superfluous fragment should have an individual space on each side. That's the correct and grammat grammatically correct way to do that particular type of ellipsis because it's a little bit different from the trailing or the introductory. I love it. Thank you, Liz. You're welcome. Um, so with that, I will turn it over to you and hear some of what you are reading right now. So what's on your bedside table or coffee table or desk? So my virtual desk, as much as I really wanted to change this to what I'm watching, which would either be the final trailer of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, which just released this week, or the well, anything Washington Nationals related, I actually want to talk about an article I read on Vox.com, specifically in their recode section. And it's how remote work is quietly remaking our lives. Now, I'm going to be honest and say this has nothing to do with content. I find it fascinating, although I will say it's a masterclass in how to create a narratively driven article that relies on data and quotes from a lot of different sources. So it's, it's a good showcase of how to showcase different quotes. You know, what do you do when you don't want to say so-and-so said for the 15,000th time? There's a lot of great just visually and, and, and structurally how you put an article that is very research-driven together. But on the more selfish side, what I found fascinating is it really is true how much remote work has become a lot more culturally acceptable. In fact, it kind of reminds me of online dating. 10 years ago, if you had said you had met somebody on the internet and you were dating them, you would have gotten some weird side eyes and, and actually probably just told your friends, oh, we met through a mutual friend with mutual interests. That friend is match.com, but we're not going to tell you that. And remote work <laughs> is the same way. If you were a remote worker, you did like data entry or you did like multi-level marketing and that data entry was probably kind of shady and multi-level marketing steals people's money, you know, like things like that. And now it's just so a part of a lot of people's lives, including mine and even yours. Like you work out of the New Haven office, but today because you're recording, you have the luxury of recording from home and having more control of your space. And whereas if I were working in an office where I'd likely have one desk, I've transformed my basement layer of my house into this beautiful little office with like bookcases and my not fake candle behind me that no one can see. It smells like <laughs> silver birch and I love it. But I think sometimes we forget that it's not always accessible to everybody. So one of the quotes that jumped out at me was, but while remote work is becoming increasingly common, it's still only an option for certain kinds of workers. First, remote work requires reliable, secure at home broadband connections that can power video conferences. Because much of rural America lacks broadband internet, remote work is restricted to areas with access to that tech. So there is this interesting disparity um, depending on where you are in different parts of the world or different parts of the country as to whether or not this is even an option for you. So it's something that is becoming more commonplace. It's remaking how people even make their investments if, if they're buying an office. You know, it, I'm sure impact would have a very different footprint physically 
if all of our members were actually in office, whereas right now 60% of our workforce is in fact remote full time. So it's just a fascinating look at something that has drastically changed our career landscape, but it's not as uniform or across the board as we might think. And also, again, this article is just a, a, a masterclass in terms of attribution. Quotes, research studies, visual, data visualization, it's just fantastic. So that is all I have for what I'm reading. And I think that's all we have for this week for Content Lab. I think you're right. I think we've reached the end. Thank God. I'm done talking to all of you. (laughs) And I'm hungry. I haven't eaten lunch yet. Have you? No. Oh, let's stop talking to these jokers. Let's go eat lunch instead. And celebrate the World Series winning Washington Nationals. John, I want you to know I'm holding you personally responsible if you have now jinxed us. And I will only henceforth talk to you via this podcast. Everything else will be communication via carrier pigeon. I'll see you at the parade. All right, see ya.